Philippians chapter 3, one of my favorite passages in Scripture. Paul is talking to the church, and he says this in prison at the end of his life. This is what he has to say. Verse 12, not that I have already obtained this or am already perfect, but I press on to make it my own because Christ Jesus has made me his own. Brothers, I do not consider that I have made it my own, but this one thing I do. What's the one thing Paul does? Here you go. Forgetting what lies behind and straining forward to what lies ahead, I press on toward the goal for the prize of the upward call of God in Christ Jesus. Let those of you, those of us who are mature, think this way. And if anything you think otherwise, God will reveal that also to you. Let us hold true to what we have attained. Brothers, join me in imitating me. Join in imitating me and keep your eyes on those who walk according to the example you have in us. For many of whom I have often told you and now tell you even with tears, walk as enemies of the cross of Christ. Their end is destruction. Their God is their belly, and they glory in their shame with minds set on earthly things. But our citizenship is in heaven, and from it we await a Savior, the Lord Jesus Christ, who will transform our lowly body to be like his glorious body by the very same power that enables him even to subject all things to himself. This is the word of God. Lord, I pray that you would speak to our hearts today. That, that today wouldn't just be another run in the mill, you know, 20, 30 minutes where we sit and listen to somebody talk and hopefully leave with a little bit more inspiration. But I pray that you would radically restructure our hearts with your grace today. That we would leave here, maybe even with an entirely new perspective on life, something that would draw us closer to you to live a life that resembles your life to have hearts that beat after your heart, Lord. I pray that we would walk this walk that Paul's encouraging us to walk in a better way than we ever have because of what you say to us and what you do in our lives today. In Jesus' name, we pray all this. Amen. Amen. Good to see you guys here. So uh, one of the things San Diego's famous for, um, we just had a few weeks ago, uh, besides beer, is... We, we have great beer. We also have uh, really cool beaches. If you guys haven't been there, I, I recommend that if you're visiting. Um, there's a few things I'd recommend, but one of the things that's amazing in San Diego is Comic-Con. Just had Comic-Con. And when my family and I went to Comic-Con this year, we got these funny cardboard boxes with lenses. Have you guys seen these? Google Cardboard, the newest app by Google, I think. You put your phone on the inside and you download the app and you sync it up and then all of a sudden you're in an entirely different world. You could be in Paris. And here's the cool thing. You look up, you see, you see this funny structure here and you look up, oh man, that's the Eiffel Tower right there, right? You're looking all around and you're like, holy cow, this is amazing. Transports you to a different world. So I, I, I get it and my kids are, these are free at Comic-Con, gotta love that. My kids, I, Ivan gets it and he's like, dad, how do you download the app? He downloads it and he's like, Dad, when you walk, you actually walk down the street. Boom! Right into the wall. It was, <laughs> it was amazing. 
How many of you guys know that when you're walking, it's important to know where you're looking? Yeah? You can be walking and totally blinded to what's going on around you. And that, that is the metaphor that Paul uses in this passage. And it's a really simple metaphor, but it explains a profound truth. And so I'm excited to talk about it because this metaphor represents the past, the present, and the future of our salvation. It represents the secret to Paul's life. You ever wonder how Paul could have victory in the face of defeat? You ever wonder, like, Paul, what's your secret? How do you have joy in the face of pain? How do you have hope when I would be overwhelmed and tempted to despair? And I see utter failure all around me in my life. But Paul opens up and shares the secret here. And there's two parts that really unlock the meaning of this passage. Verses 13 and 14 and verses 18 and 19. Because in verses 13 and 14, Paul lays out, this is how we should walk. Here's what I do. Follow my example. And then in verses 18 and 19, he says, here's how we shouldn't walk. This is actually the example you don't want to follow. This is how the enemies of the cross of Christ walk. So today, as we explore the past, present, and future of our salvation, we're going to talk about this is how we get to walk in that, and this is how we should not be walking in that. So let's dive in and explore this journey with Paul. The past and present and future are the main points, and in each we're going to talk about how to walk and how not to walk. You guys ready? All right, cool. So let's talk about the past. We've been saved been justified. The past is justification. Everybody say that big word with me, justification. You guys sound great. Paul says in verse 13, brothers, I do not consider that I've made it my own, but one thing I do, what? Forgetting what lies behind. So Paul's comparing our our walk of salvation to a path we're walking We're on a path from from ruin to restoration, from brokenness to blessing, from death to life. And the first thing he tells us is that in order to walk that path, you have to leave something behind. It's like taking a vacation. You ever try to take a vacation and you just kind of overpack? And you've got like the expandables. We have expandable suitcases that I didn't understand what all the zippers did. And then eventually I discovered, oh my gosh, it like, it's like an Inspector Gadget suitcase that becomes twice as large. Have you guys seen these? Maybe you have one. And, and still, I'm sitting on it, the expandable zipper, trying to make sure I can close all of this extra stuff into my suitcase. When we follow Jesus, we can't take our whole life with us as it was because it weighs us down. Can you imagine that? You're packing for a trip and you're like, yeah, I could fit this trophy in my suitcase (laughs) on the way to Bahamas. Yeah, man, if I could just squeeze this old, defective, broken relationship in there on this trip, man, that would really make it worthwhile. If I could just squash some of this security and comfort in, I'll be set. And man, I couldn't even sleep at night without this addiction. No, the journey requires that we pack light. If you're following Jesus, there's always stuff in the rear view mirror. And for me, there's like a growing list of stuff. Every day, every week, it seems like there's more things that God brings to my attention that he lovingly like calls me away from and says, son, that's not life. You're looking for life, follow me. That's not life. Let go of that. 
And the good news is the more I let go by his grace, the more of him I seem to get. And that's what Paul says. Paul says in, the, in a few verses back, and I just want to back up because it almost feels like we started this section kind of in the middle of a thought. So I'm going to back up and read the verses before that. Verse seven, but whatever gain I had, I count it as a loss for the sake of Christ. Indeed, I count everything. Everybody say everything. Everything as lost because of the surpassing worth of knowing Christ Jesus, my Lord. For his sake, I've suffered the loss of all things and count them as dung in order that I may gain Christ and be found in him. Not having a righteousness of my own that, that comes from the law, but that which comes through faith in Christ, the righteousness from God that depends on faith. Do you see that? Paul is effectively telling us he's walking away from the things that wants to find him, the things he wants gloried in. Not just the big sins, not just the big addictions, not just the thou shalt nots, but even the good things. I know for, for me, the first time I, I heard that, the first time that really started to settle and, and marinate down into my heart, it shocked me because I realized that Paul is calling us because of the gospel to repent and turn away from not only our sins, but also our achievements. To walk away from the things that we used to use to justify our existence. The things that we would use if we were going to stand before a holy God and give a reason for why we're here. I mean, can you imagine that? You're called before the judge of all the earth. And you get this moment and he says, now son, daughter, I want you to go ahead and, and justify your life. And you're like, and, and he brings up a list of all the sins, all the brokenness, all the selfish things we've ever done. He just holds them up there, right? And you're like, yeah, oh yeah. I remember when I did that to my boss, but you remember that time I was on the bus and I gave that old lady my seat? Like, that was good, right? That was good. I know I looked at that website, but seriously, like, there was that time when the missionary came through, right? And he had the funky teeth and living in the jungle for years and stuff. And I gave money to that. You remember that? And imagine taking all the stuff that you would use, the goodness that you would use to justify your existence before God, right? And try to tip the scales. Imagine all the good you would try to bring somewhere to offset the bad you've done. Imagine that. Side note, that's how religion works, Right? Religion says, do good in order to be good. You're the sum total of what you do, right? You are what you do. So do good in order to get more wisdom. Do good in order to be more godlike. But Christianity doesn't work like that. Paul says the opposite. Paul says, I'm bringing all those things to God. My past, my good works, my pedigree, and I'm tearing them up, I'm throwing them away. I don't need them to justify my life. In fact, I'm gonna repent of ever thinking that they could justify me. Why? Because what I'm seeking is already mine. All I have, all I need is Christ. So Paul says, so if we were standing before a holy God and if we could somehow recall all the good works and achievements, the Bible says, would we measure up? What's the Bible say? Bible says we'd still fall short, wouldn't we? I love what Isaiah the prophet says. He says, all our righteousness, that's filthy rags. And Paul says, all the good, all the achievements, everything that I did at one point, the best I had to offer was dung. Are you sensing a theme here? 
So it's like you walk up to God and you're like, here's what I have to offer. Here's a pile of dirty rags and a pile of dung. How's that work for you? It's the best that the Bible says we have to offer. That's why justification is so amazing because of Jesus' atoning work in our place. His perfect life lived for us every day in the flesh. His his substitutionary death. He died on the cross for, for the death we deserved. Justification says, I've been saved from the penalty of my sin. And it's not because of me or anything I've done. It's all of grace. It's all what God's done for me. Jesus sought me when a stranger wandering from the fold of God, he, he to rescue me from danger, interposed his precious blood. But get this, here's what Paul says. I'm doing this, I'm throwing all that stuff away. I'm forgetting what lies behind. I'm forgetting the things I found my identity and my worth and my value in. But here's what he says. This is what the enemies of the cross do. The ones whose end is destruction. They're, they're glorifying themselves because of their filthy rags and their dumb. They're like, yeah, I'm pretty good. This stuff is awesome. He says in verse 19, they glory in their shame. They're so proud of their poopy diaper. They refuse to walk away from the refuse. They, they can't allow Jesus to be Lord of their life. They can't follow Jesus because they can't let go of their past. They can't walk the walk because they're living life in the rearview mirror. And they find their glory and identity and value in a pile of shame and sewage that they like to call home. But Paul says, I let go of all of that. Now I found my life in Christ. That's justification. Point two, the present, sanctification. What does life in Christ look like now? Paul says, not only do I forget what lies behind me, but, verse 14, I press on toward the goal for the prize of the upward call of God in Christ Jesus. So he's let go of his past and what's he doing in his present? He's pressing on. What's Paul talking about? He's talking about the present tense of our salvation, sanctification. I am being saved from the power of sin. Yeah, I've been saved from sin's penalty. I'm saved. I'm washed. I'm cleansed. God sees me with a new identity. I'm a new creation in Christ. But every day, I'm becoming more like him. Every day, I'm being saved from the power of sin at work in my life. Listen to how he says it in the Living Bible Translation. I love this. He says, and this is uh, verses 11 through 13 in Philippians 3. So whatever it takes, I will be one who lives in the fresh newness of life, of those who are alive from the dead. I don't mean to say I'm perfect. I haven't learned all I should even yet, but I keep working toward that day when I will finally be all that Christ saved me for and wants me to be. No, dear brothers, I am still not all I should be. So Paul says, I'm saved, but I'm not perfect yet. In the meantime, what am I doing in the present? I'm pressing on. Everybody say pressing on. Are you pressing on? Is your sense of salvation growing more real every day? Is is your life growing more holy? Are you looking more like Jesus? Those are hard questions. Questions I had to ask myself a lot this week. Because here's the deal, and I don't want to scare you, we're either acting like children of the king or we're living like enemies of the cross. And how do they look in the present? Instead of pressing on toward the prize, what do they look like? Paul says it here in verse 19. Their God is their belly. I feel like that lately. 
the way I've been eating all summer. Their God is their belly. Their minds are set on earthly things. Obviously, when he says their God is their belly, I don't think he's just saying that people that are overweight are in danger of hellfire. I think what he's saying is our bellies, our sensual appetites, our passions, our, our desires, the stuff that used to sustain them, yesterday's bread, the, the dung, the, the things, they're, they're, they're living on it. Why? All they think of is this life in the now. I remember growing up, we used to listen to music, and we had Christian music, but then we had secular music. You guys remember that? It's, it's still around, actually. If you go to the Bible bookstore, they have a Christian section, secular section. Um, actually, Bible bookstores don't have a secular section. I stand corrected. Secular, that, that word comes from the Latin word saculum, which means a period of time or in the now. Worldliness is secularism, but what's that mean? Timeism, nowism, the here and the now. Worldliness is an attitude that says the here and the now is all that matters. Or the here and the now is all there is. It's a worldly mindset. It's, it's not worldly to enjoy the material world. Don't get me wrong. Guys, it's godly to enjoy and live life to the full. That's a beautiful thing. We're going to differentiate that in a few minutes. But just, just to live for the now, just to make the material world an end in itself, to make your God, your belly, your passions, your desires, is worldliness. And if you've been around for a while, you've probably heard me say this. If you want to understand worldliness, look at the most extreme secularists in our society. Do you know who the most secular people in our society are? Kids. Yeah, seriously, we have a big job as parents, right? We have to tell kids not to just waste all of their time and energy and money on the now, but you have to get them to start thinking about the future. You guys know what I'm talking about? Hey, Gavin, we got early morning tomorrow. You should, you should probably go to bed. I don't care. Hey, Gavin, um, if you save your money, you, know, you could buy Legos at Target later. I don't care. Gavin, you could eat this now, or you could have ice cream later. I don't care. I don't care. I, it's now. I have my needs, Dad. I have these things that I have to live for in the moment. These urges. What was it that made Esau a profane and worldly person? You guys remember Esau? One of the biblical words for worldliness is profane. We're told in Hebrews, Esau was a profane man. Why? Remember the story? Esau is out hunting, gathering, and he gets back to camp and he smells that wonderful stew that his brother's making. And he's like, oh, there it is. I want some of that. And he goes up to Jacob and he says, hey man, listen, I gotta have, I got to have me some of that stew. Right? That's what he, he said it just like that. And, and Jacob was like, dude, you can totally have some. Just give me your birthright. I would love your birthright. That'd be awesome. His birthright, you guys know what a birthright is, right? It's what the oldest son gets. It's all the father's wealth and everything. But guess what? It's coming in the future when the father passes off the scene. And, and Esau says, what good is my birthright going to do me if I die right now from not having this lovely stew that you've made? Exaggeration. Worldly people always exaggerate the importance of the now, this moment. What was it that made Esau profane and worldly person? He was childish. From God's perspective, worldly person is engaged in cosmic childishness. 
And Paul says that when we are engaged in cosmic childlessness, when we're living for the now, then we aren't living abundant, cross-centered lives. In fact, we're living like enemies of the cross. We aren't pressing on like Paul. We're just stuck in the now. And Paul says, no, remember, guys, verse 20, our citizenship is in heaven. Yeah, you guys are living like this world is all there is. This, this moment is all there is, but our citizenship is in heaven. Anybody have dual citizenship here? Nobody. A couple people. Yeah. So dual citizenship. When, or when you're, when you're a citizen and you visit another country, do you just totally adapt to their rules and their laws? Or do you still live like a citizen of the country you're from, but you also try to honor the laws of the place you're visiting? Right? And people in Rome got this. And people in Philippi, especially where Paul's writing this, got this. Because all, all the time, what would happen is people would come through the Roman army and they'd want to go back to Rome, but their soldiers in Rome's getting overcrowded. So they send them out to the provinces like Philippi. And so people are living in Philippi that are, have dual citizenship. They're Roman and they're Philippian. And they understand what Paul's talking about. He says, guys, no, it's just like what you have with dual citizenship. You got to live like your citizens of heaven. Not just live for the moment and what Philippi, what the culture is putting on you. So you, you got to ask yourself, like, how do you do that? Well, we're going to get to that in the third point, but one example of how not to do that. You guys remember the story of Sodom and Gomorrah and Lot and his family? Super heavy story, right? Lot and his family live there in Sodom and Gomorrah, and eventually it gets so bad that God's going to destroy the city but God calls to Lot and his family and sends these angels, these messengers from God to pull them out of the city. You guys remember what they say to him as they're about to run from the city and, and fire and brimstone is going to fall from heaven and destroy it? Yes. Don't look back. Don't look back. And what do we see here? In the, is there a picture? We got a picture? Yeah. You see Lot and his daughters walking they probably walk faster than that, I think, but that's a beautiful picture. And I mean, fire's behind you, you know. <laughs> it's just an instinct thing here. We're gonna, even animals run faster than that. But anyway, they're, they're walking out of the city, and Lot's wife does what? Anybody remember? She turns back and becomes a pillar of salt. I heard the old preacher say, they got. Lot's wife out of Sodom, but they couldn't get Sodom out of her. Bless God. <laughs> it's true. She had let the world get its hooks in her. She had Stockholm Syndrome. She'd been captive to that culture so long, she'd begun to identify with her captors more than the God who loved her and was providing salvation to her. All she had to do was keep her eyes on the prize. All she had to do was look ahead to see that moment from an eternal perspective, to press on beyond the momentary feelings, but because her mind was so stuck in her moment, because her identity was so stuck in her past, she turned and instantly became a pillar of salt. And Paul tells us, guys, the only way to live is to let go of your past and to press on in the present. How do we do that? Well, it's by looking ahead to God's future. And that's the final point, the future. Salvation is past, it's justification. I have been saved from the penalty of sin. Salvation is present even in this moment. Sanctification, I'm being saved from the power of sin at work in my life. But salvation is future too because one day, 
One day we're going to be glorified. One day we will be saved from the presence of sin. And Paul says that. He says, But one thing I do, forgetting what lies behind and straining forward to what lies ahead, I press on toward the goal for the prize of the upward call of God in Christ Jesus. How does Paul press on in the present? He does it by straining forward to what lies ahead. Let me ask you a practical question. How do you walk? Let's make this really simple. How do you walk? Do you look behind you the whole time you're walking? Another pair of glasses we had in our house was the rear view spy glasses. Have you guys seen those? Those are awesome. But that's the thing. Like you can forget to look forward because you're so caught up behind you. Boom. Right? How about your feet? Have you ever tried running a race and just staring down at your feet the whole time? At the present moment? You can't, you can't walk. You can't run a race looking behind you or staring down at your feet. Where do you have to look? Where? Forward. You have to look ahead. And Paul is using this simple example to bring us some complex wisdom. And this is where it really comes together. This is the secret to Paul's life. You ready? Culture says this. Culture says be in the moment. Man, just soak it up. Live in the now. Be present. And that sounds great on the surface. And I think there's probably some truth in that. But if we're not careful, the problem is what we can mean and what we often mean when we say that is live for your moment. Like we said, that's nowism, that's secularism, that's worldliness, and that is not how God is telling us to live here through Paul. God is telling us to view the present moment through the lens of God's future for us. As the philosophers like Baruch Spinoza say, we must act in time, subspecie eternitatis, which means from the perspective of eternity. Has anybody ever uh, heard of Viktor Frankl? Man's Search for Meaning. Amazing book. If you haven't read it, amazing book, amazing man. I mean, a philosopher who really learned a lot about life by World War II being in concentration camps. You can learn a lot from somebody who has that kind of life experience. And one of the things he says in that book that caught my eye, he says, it is a peculiarity of man that he can only truly live by looking to the future. Subspecie eternitatis. What are the philosophers saying? What's Frankel and Spinoza saying when they say that? They're saying we have to move around in time, subspecie eternitatis. We have to move in time from the perspective of eternity. We are called to eternal life. You're eternal. You're going to live forever somewhere. To make, we're called to, to make eternal decisions in the moment, in the here and now. Not just momentary and light decisions. And Paul is saying he sees the present moment through the lens of eternity. You see what I'm saying? Present moment through the lens of eternity. Those who live for now, those who live with short-sightedness just on the moment, they're the ones that are walking the wrong way. They're staring down at their feet. They're glorifying in the shameful past that, that Paul says he's throwing away. They end up worshiping their bellies instead of worshiping Christ. They're preoccupied with the now instead of seeing every moment in life in light of eternity. Let me ask you guys a question. Let's just dialogue about this for a second. How would we live if all that mattered was the moment? Like seriously, all that matters is this moment. How many of you would be here right now if all that mattered was the moment? Show of hands. <laughs> That's awesome. 
I'm not, I'm not sure if I would, honestly, if all that mattered was the money. <laughs> That's awesome. Yeah, but wh- how would we live? What, what kind of decisions would we make if all that mattered was the moment? Anybody? What's that? I drink a lot more. <laughs> all right, yeah. Spend too much money. Because I don't need to save for tomorrow. I've got this moment. I want to feel good. I want to enjoy life. Yeah, what else? Just like kids. Just like kids. Just like kids. All that matters is that moment. What's, think about yourself, right? Have you guys ever like, caught yourself living that way? Maybe even recently? Making decisions like that? Oh, yeah. All the time. All the time. Every, every little spat I get in with my life, every selfish moment where, where uh, I mean, whether it's, whether it's at work, whether it's with people, relationally, like I could track back, man, a lot of that comes back to me only caring about the moment, not seeing life from an eternal perspective, from a godly perspective. Spend all my money, throw caution to the wind, ignore what matters We'd be like Esau. We'd be like Lot's wife. That's how we'd live our entire lives. But unlike Esau, whose God is literally his belly because all he can see is the now, unlike Lot's wife who who can't embrace the future because she's living for now, Paul, unlike them, is in prison. At the end of his life, very little hope of freedom. Yet in this letter, he's overflowing with optimism. He's full of joy. He's overwhelmed with hope. How is that possible? If Paul looked at his present moment through a secular now lens, it would have crushed him. He couldn't have handled the weight of that moment through the same kind of lens that Esau was living with or Lot's wife. What hope is there when you see all of life just through the lens of this moment? but he sees his present through the lens of what's to come. He sees the present pain he's feeling through the lens of his future healing. He sees his current imprisonment through the lens of his future freedom. He sees his current temptations through the lens of his future glorification. He sees the current struggles going on in the church that he loves through the lens of the restoration that is coming. If you can see your present life through a lens of eternity, through a resurrection perspective, it changes everything. Do you see that? What situations are you in right now? Honestly, just think about it. Maybe you're in situations that are stealing your joy or or leaving you hopeless or, or leading you into broken patterns. Maybe you're in situations that are directing your eyes to the rearview mirror again to find significance or directing your worship and your passions to live for the moment. Have you maybe even found yourself living more like an enemy of the cross lately than a child of the king? There's this skewed life that God is calling us to, a life that lets go of the past and presses on in the present by seeing it through the lens of the future. It's a life that keeps its eyes on the prize. It's the only way to really walk the walk. What is the prize that Paul's pressing on to? We have to, we have to answer that question as we wind up. 
Well, he said it back in Philippians 3, 7, and 8. He said, I count everything as loss because of the surpassing worth of knowing Christ Jesus, my Lord, for whose sake I have suffered the loss of all things and count them as rubbish and dung in order that I may gain Christ. Christ is the ultimate goal. Being with Christ, beholding him, being transformed into his image. One day, if you're in Christ, you will be glorified. Alive, really alive, eternal, holy, healed, righteous, secure, fulfilled, overflowing, perfect, happy. That's yours in Christ. But for now, Paul says in 1 Corinthians, for now we see in a mirror dimly, but then face to face. Now I know in part, but then I shall know fully, even as I have been fully known. You know what John says in 1 John? I love this. This, this is a promise of the day that's coming the final day when we're ultimately gonna be fully saved. He says, beloved, we are God's children now. And what we will be has not yet appeared, but we know that when he appears, we shall be like him because we shall see him as he is. Do you see what's waiting for you in your future? No more sin, no more struggle, no more pain, no more loss, no more fear, no more hate, no more death, just eternal life. One day we will be glorified, and until then, we get to live like it's true. We get to see all of life through that lens. And as I read this week, as I studied this, I'm just going to confess, this passage convicted my heart over and over. I felt, felt like Jean Valjean in Les Mis, where he, uh, in the song, he says, I stared into the void of the whirlpool of my sin. As I read this, the more I read the difference of Paul and these false Christians that he calls enemies of the cross, the more I felt a sense of hopelessness and terror because I identified with them. I looked at my life and I'm like, man, I, I still worship my belly, my passions, my desires. I mind earthly things. I live in the moment like a cosmic child. That, that This moment is all that matters instead of seeing my present through an eternal perspective. I find myself so glorying in my shame. Finding my glory and my value in my own work, the, the, the dirty diapers, instead of Christ's work. And I started asking myself, man, am I living like a Christian or an enemy of the cross? I don't know if maybe you've even wondered that today as we've preached. But the Holy Spirit reminded me of some good news. <laughs> First of all, that if I'm convicted of my sin, it's because he's at work in me. Like Paul said, both to will and to do his good pleasure. If you're feeling convicted today, that's, good, that's a good time. It means God's at work. And besides the burden of my salvation, it doesn't rest on me. Who's it rest on? Jesus. That's it. It's not about me. It's not about you. It's not about what you do. It's not about your achievement. That's the whole point of this passage. It's about Jesus. It's, it's good news. It's great news the best news we get to repent today it's good news to repent i know sometimes we get all like somber about repentance right oh i gotta repent so i gotta i have to cry every time no there's a godly sorrow that works repentance the bible says but we get to look at our failures long enough to feel godly sorrow and turn from them then we get to look at our savior jesus and spend time worshiping him why because paul says that what Paul calls us to do, what Paul calls us to obey here, and we fail at all the time, 
Jesus fulfilled. I'm going to read two brief passages in closing before we take communion. Because Jesus laid aside the glory of his past and humbled himself to win us. You know how we forget to you know, look behind us? Jesus did it perfectly. Look, look here at what Paul said earlier in the chapter before this. He said, have this mind among yourselves, which is yours in Christ Jesus. Who though he was in the form of God, did not count equality with God a thing to be grasped, but emptied himself by taking the form of a servant, being born in the likeness of men, and being found in human form. He humbled himself by becoming obedient to the point of death, even death on a cross. Therefore God has highly exalted him and bestowed on him a name that is above every name, so that the name of Jesus, every knee should bow in heaven and on earth and under the earth, and every tongue confess that Jesus Christ is Lord to the glory of God the Father. So every time I fail to forget my past, every time I, instead of humbling myself, I look to my works and my past to build up my identity and define me. Every, every moment that I failed at that, the moments when I come up here and I preach a sermon and I look for my identity and the response and how good or bad that went, every moment of our life, when we fall short, Christ succeeded in our place. He laid aside his identity and humbled himself. And then, the last point, Jesus pressed on in his present moment, including suffering, looking to the joy that was set before him. Jesus really lived subspecie eternitatis. He saw his moment from the perspective of eternity. Listen here, Hebrews 12. Therefore, since we have so great a cloud of witnesses surrounding us, let us also lay aside every encumbrance and the sin that so easily entangles us and let us run with endurance the race that is set before us, fixing our eyes on Jesus, the author and perfecter of our faith. You hear the good news in that? He began a good work in you, he's gonna finish it. He's the author of your faith, he's the finisher of your faith. And then he says this, how, how, what do we see in Jesus? Who for the joy that was set before him endured the cross, despising the shame, and has sat down at the right hand of the throne of God. So every time I live in the moment, every time that I forget to live with an eternal perspective, I get to remember that Jesus did it perfectly on my behalf. For the joy that was set before him, he endured the cross. He pressed on in the present, looking forward to the future. And what was that joy, guys? What was the joy that was set before him? Reconcile, reconciling you to the Father. Uniting us together in Christ. You saved, loved, glorified, forgiven. You're the joy. You're the reason he went to the cross. He loves you. So today as we come down and pray and take communion together, I want to ask you guys to really think about what areas of your life to, to, to joyfully repent. Look, look within and say, man, where am I actually living more like an enemy of the cross than a child of the king? So here's three questions to ask yourself in repentance. The past, in what ways am I finding my identity in what I do? You can ask yourself that question and confess that in the circle of broken people that, that live solely by the grace of God. In the present, in what ways am I living like a cosmic child and worshiping my passion? In the future, in what ways is my life headed in destructive patterns toward destruction? You get to confess that today. But we don't stop there. That's just half the equation. We also get to believe the gospel. So here's some, here's some questions 
to ask yourself about belief. In the past, how does Jesus' perfect obedience in the flesh give me the identity I crave? Define me. In the present, how does Christ's perfect sacrifice cleanse me from my sin and empower my obedience? In future, how does the gospel give me hope for my future reward? I'm going to pray. And now I'm going to give some instruction on communion. Father, this was a lot today. Uh, It's a big passage, and man, I just wish we could preach it for the next year because there's so much in it. So much we even skipped, but your word is powerful and life-changing, and I pray that, Holy Spirit, even if some of this stuff got lost in, in in the mix of the sermon, that you would apply the truth that we needed to hear today to our hearts, that you would do a work in our lives, that you would call us away from the meaningless existences that we've looked for in the, in the things that once defined us anything outside of you and that you draw us to yourself. And like Paul, that we would be, be found in you, not having some of this, this stuff that we've used to justify our lives, but having you and you alone and letting that be enough. I pray that you would cleanse us of our sin. I pray that you would direct our hearts to repent and that we would just worship and be filled with joy, filled to the brim with joy because of your good work that you're doing in us as we believe the gospel. In Jesus' name we pray, amen.